Hello and welcome to another episode of Blackwell's Presents. Earlier in the year, we were joined by Kristen Rupenian, author of viral short story, Cat Person, published in The New Yorker in 2017, to discuss her short story collection, You Know You Want This. Kristen was in conversation with Daisy Johnson, friend of the shop and author of Man Booker shortlisted Everything Under. You Know You Want This is a collection of short stories which are bound to unsettle you. These are stories of women in their everyday lives, but each with a strange twist. <laughs> Okay. Hi, everybody. Welcome. Um, I'm Kristen. I am very excited to be talking to Daisy tonight. I'm a huge fan of hers, so this is very lucky for me as well. Um, but I was going to kick things off by reading just a short selection from one of my stories. Um, it's a story called Biter, and I'll read just about 10 minutes or so. Biter. Ellie was a biter. She bit other kids in preschool, bit her cousins bit her mom. By the time she was four years old, she was going to a special doctor twice a week to work on biting. At the doctor's, Ellie made two dolls bite each other, and then the dolls talked about how biting and being bitten made them feel. Ouch, one said. Sorry, said the other. I feel sad about that, said the one. I feel happy, said the other. But sorry again. She brainstormed lists of things she could do instead of biting, like raise her hand and ask for help, or take a deep breath and count to ten. At the doctor's suggestion, Ellie's parents put a chart on Ellie's bedroom door, and Ellie's mom put a gold star on it for every day Ellie didn't bite. But Ellie loved biting, even more than she loved gold stars, and she kept on biting, joyfully and fiercely, until one day, after preschool, Pretty Katie Davis pointed at Ellie and whispered loudly to her dad, That one's Ellie. No one likes her. She bites people. And Ellie felt so sick with shame, she didn't bite anyone again for more than 20 years. As an adult, though her active biting days were long behind her, Ellie still indulged in daydreams in which she stalked her coworkers around the office, biting them. For example, she imagined sneaking into the copy room where Thomas Whittacombe was collating reports, so engrossed in his task that he didn't notice Ellie creeping up behind him on all fours. Ellie, what on earth, Thomas Whittacombe would cry in the final seconds before Ellie t sunk her teeth into his plump and hairy calf. For while the world had succeeded in shaming Ellie out of biting, it couldn't make her forget the joy of tiptoeing behind Robbie Ketrick while he was standing at the craft table, smugly stacking blocks. Everything is normal, quiet, boring. Now here comes Ellie. Chomp. Now Robbie Ketrick is screaming like a baby, and everybody is scrambling and yelling, and Ellie is no longer just a little girl, but a wild creature, pacing the halls of the preschool, sowing chaos and destruction in her wake. The difference between children and adults is that adults understand the consequences of their actions, and Ellie, as an adult, understood that if she wanted to pay her rent and keep her health insurance, she could not run around biting people at work. Therefore, for a long time, Ellie did not seriously consider biting her co-workers, not until the office manager died of a heart attack at lunch in front of everyone, and the temp agency sent Corey Allen to replace him. Corey Allen Later, Ellie's co-workers would ask each other, what on earth have the people at the temp agency been thinking sending him? 
Green-eyed, blonde-haired, pink-cheeked Corey Allen did not belong in an office environment. Corey Allen, like a fawn or a satyr, belonged in a sunlit field surrounded by happy naked nymphs making love and drinking wine. As Michelle in accounting put it, Corey Allen gave off the impression that he might, at any second, decide to quit being an office manager and run off to live in a tree. Ellie, who was something of an outcast at work, often walked in on hushed conversations about Corey Allen that presumably centered around how much the other women in the office wanted to sleep with him. Corey Allen was beautiful and fey. Ellie didn't want to have sex with Corey Allen. Ellie wanted to bite him. Hard. She discovered this while watching Corey Allen place glazed donuts on a platter before the Monday morning meeting. When he had finished arranging the donuts, he turned around and, noticing her staring at him, winked. Why, Ellie, you look hungry, he said with a leer. Ellie had not been checking out Corey Allen the way he seemed to be implying. She hadn't even been thinking about the donuts. But suddenly, she found herself imagining what it would be like to lock her jaws onto the soft part of Corey Allen's neck. Corey Allen would yelp and sink to his knees, that entitled look wiped right off his face. He'd slap weakly at her and cry, Oh no, Ellie, stop, please, what is going on? But Ellie wouldn't answer because her mouth would be too full of Corey Allen's sweet and gamey flesh. Not that it had to be his neck. She wasn't picky about location. She could bite Corey Allen on his hand, or his face, or his elbow, or his ass. Each would have a different taste, a different mouthfeel, a different proportion of bone to fat to skin. Each would be, in its own way, delectable. Maybe I will bite Corey Allen, Ellie thought after the meeting. Ellie worked in communications, which meant that she spent 90% of her time crafting emails that no one ever read. She had a savings account and life insurance, but no lover, no ambition, no close friends. Her entire existence, she sometimes felt, was premised on the idea that pursuing pleasure was less important than avoiding pain. Perhaps the problem with adulthood was that you weighed the consequences of your actions too carefully in a way that left you with a life you despised. What if Ellie did bite Corey Allen? What if she did? What then? That night, Ellie changed into her nicest pajamas, lit a candle, and poured herself a glass of Cabernet. Then, she uncapped a pen, opened her favorite notebook, and turned to a fresh page. Reasons not to bite Corey Allen. 1. It is wrong. 2. I could get in trouble. She nibbled on the tip of her pen, then added two subsidiary points. Reasons not to bite Corey Allen. 1. It is wrong. 2. I could get in trouble. A. I could get fired. B. I could get arrested and or fined. Ellie thought, if it meant that I could bite Corey, I would not mind getting fired. For the past year and a half, she'd spent most of her lunch hour, most days, on her phone, swiping through job postings on Monster.com. She was ready for a new position and felt perfectly well qualified for one. However, finding a new job after quitting your old one was not the same as finding a new job after you'd been fired from your old job for biting. Would it be impossible to get a new job in those circumstances or merely very difficult? It was hard to know. Ellie sipped her wine and turned her attention to B, I could get arrested and or fined. Well, that was certainly a possibility. But the truth was that if a woman bit a man in an office environment, there would be a strong assumption that the man had done something to deserve it. 
If, for example, she went up to Corey and bit him in full view of everyone at Monday morning meeting, and then later, when they asked her why she'd done it, she answered, sexual gratification, then yes, she'd probably be arrested. But if, instead, she bit Corey in private, say, in the copy room, and when they asked her why she'd done it, she said, he tried to touch me inappropriately, or even, so as not to mar his reputation, he came up behind me and scared me, I bit him instinctively, I'm so sorry, then people would probably give her the benefit of the doubt. When you got right down to it, as a young white woman without a criminal record, Ellie probably had at least one get-out-of-jail-free card. As long as she spun some semi-reasonable story, she would be believed. In fact, Ellie thought, as she stretched out her legs and refilled her glass of wine, there was another possibility for how all this could play out. What if she went up to Corey in private and bit him, and the experience was so bizarre that he didn't tell anyone about it because he had trouble believing it himself? Imagine, it's late in the afternoon, past five, dark already, the office is empty, everyone but Corey and Ellie has gone home. Corey is loading paper into the Xerox machine when Ellie enters the room. She stands behind him, inappropriately close. He thinks he knows what is coming. He stiffens, preparing to politely reject her, not because he has standards for workplace propriety, but because he's already hooking up with Rachel in HR. Ellie, he begins, apologetically, as she grabs his forearm and lifts it to her mouth. Corey's lovely face contorts, first in shock, then pain. Stop it, Ellie, he cries, but no one hears him. The tendons of his arm roll and snap beneath Ellie's jaws. Finally, Corey gathers his wits enough to shove Ellie away. She stumbles backwards, lands against the stacks of copy paper, and slides to the ground. Corey stares at her in horror, clutching his bleeding arm. He's waiting for her explanation, but she gives him none. Instead, she stands up calmly, straightens her skirt, and wipes the blood from her mouth before she leaves the room. What does Corey do? Of course, he could run straight to HR and say, Ellie bit me! But after all, it was an office, not a preschool. Everything about the conversation would be ridiculous. Ellie, did you bite Corey? They would ask. And Ellie would raise her eyebrows and say, uh, no, what a weird question. If the HR people tried to push and said, Ellie, these are serious allegations. All Ellie would have to say was, yeah, seriously insane. Of course I did not bite the office manager and I don't know why he's saying that I did. Really, the odds were high Corey wouldn't say anything at all. He would stay in the co copy room for a while, contemplating the situation, and then the next day, he'd decide the easiest thing to do would be to pretend it hadn't happened. He'd show up to work the next day in a long-sleeved shirt to cover the ugly bruise on his arm, the little half-moon where she'd marked him with her teeth. And then, part of Corey Allen's brain would be reserved for keeping track of where, exactly, Ellie was. She'd catch him looking at her in meetings, and when they were at office parties together, he'd continually be moving, trying to keep as far as possible away from her. In a way, it'd be like they were always dancing, even if he never spoke to her again. Months later, when no one was watching, she'd grin and snap her jaws at him, and he'd turn ghost pale and hurry from the room. He would remember her for the rest of his life. They'd be joined by the glistening strands of his fear. Later that night... The sweat drying on her body, her legs tangled in the sheets, Ellie forced herself to go back out into the living room and get her notebook. Fantasies were fantasies, but it was important to keep at least one foot in the realm of the real. She got back in bed, 
and opened the notebook and rewrote her list. Reasons not to bite Corey Allen. One, it is wrong. Two, it is wrong. Three, it is wrong. Four, it is wrong. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kristen, for being here. It's really exciting. So many people. Yeah. Um, I think inevitably we need to talk about cat person. Of course. Let's do it. Okay. Yes. Um, ooh, it's exciting. Mm-hmm. Can everyone, can you hear me at the back? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I remember when cat person came out, um, all of my friends were sending it to me. It was huh. all over Twitter. Uh-huh. It, um, and that was what everyone was talking about. What was that like for you? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that's weird about talking about when cat person came out is I feel like I am the one literary aspiring writer like woman who totally missed that train because as soon as it started going viral I was basically shut my computer and basically hid under my bed for two days um yeah I the I found out sort of slowly my um I'm on Twitter and I was then but not super super engaged and it was my girlfriend actually who noticed um first she we were sitting at a coffee shop and she was sort of scrolling through and she was like hmm something's going on with your story. (laughs) And I was like, yep. (laughs) Well, that's not true, actually. I was like, huh, what? And um, I sort of like scoffed a little. I like didn't really get it. And I I went home and I was looking through, through, Twitter myself and my and my mom called and I tried to explain to her what was happening and she was also vaguely confused and um eventually at one point the moment sort of that I knew that something was going on was um my mom was looking on Twitter and she goes Kristen oh my god someone Barack Obama follows on Twitter just shared your story do you think Barack Obama has read your story? And then she started crying. <laughs> and I was like, okay, <laughs> something's going on. So that was sort of the moment. And then after that, yeah, got weirder and weirder. I've read you describing it, I think, as an annihilation. Yeah, I mean, the experience as a whole was very disorienting. The sort of annihilating piece, yeah, in that essay where I talk about about the experience was, it was more like, before I was like got my wits about me to close my computer, it was not just that it was going viral and that people were reading it, which of course I wanted. It was that I had access to everybody's kind of unmediated thoughts about the story in real time. And even just the like hour or so where I was scrolling through and just hearing people's just like immediately unfiltered opinions, that I felt like, was sort of a kind of scale that one human being isn't like supposed to process in terms of what other people are thinking about them. It's not even like good or bad or we like this or we don't. It's just like the idea that you're one little person and that many people are having thoughts about you or something that you've written. Yeah, it felt it made me feel very, very like sort of unbearably small, which was weird because it was like a big thing that was happening t- to me. Um, but it was it was it was very disorienting. And I think I spent a lot of the past year trying to kind of wrap my mind around what happened and also figure out like sort of what the right relationship is to the internet, which like in some ways, like people are talking to you, but you're also like eavesdropping on their opinions. You know, they're not necessarily expecting you to, I think even, even sometimes when people tag you and things, I think they're not really expecting that you're just sitting there going, Hmm, what are people thinking about me? And then feeling it, you know? Um, So, yeah. And a lot of people felt like, 
they were eavesdropping on you by reading the story. Yeah. Um, and I think that, that sense of um, everything a woman writes is autobiography. What was that like? Yeah. I mean, it was, it was strange. It, like, I think, you know, it was essentially my first published story. I had like a few other tiny things online. And there was, you know, one picture of me where you couldn't really tell how old I was. So I guess in some ways, the like assumption that the story had some was like essentially autobiographical wasn't that far afield. Um, but like in practice, it, it was like the main character in my story, Margot is 20. I'm 37. She's like single on a date with a man. I was in a relationship with a woman. Like there were these big gaps and it, and it was very disorienting. It was like another thing where I felt like my life was sort of spinning out of my control and suddenly everybody thought I was somebody that I wasn't. Although at the same time, it did feel a little bit like a certain segment of that of the conversation was sort of vitriolic and like harshly judgmental. And it almost felt like the target landed slightly to the side of me. Cause I was just like, I know you think I'm her and you're calling her, or like, yeah, that I am her and you're calling her a slut. I know that I'm not her. I'm still mad at you, but it like bothers me a little bit less than it would have if like truly I had been on that date the week before. And right. I, you know what I mean? It had been more of an autobiographical yeah. story. Right. You were bothered for the imaginary. I, I mean, in fact, that's something I think about a lot is mm -hmm. like the imaginary author of Cat Person who was 15 years younger than I was. Because I think certainly the people who knew that, mm -hmm. who were saying those kinds of things, they didn't know. Yeah. They didn't. I could have been 23. And like, I mean... 20 I could have been 20 and like I just do think the dis just a little bit of distance from her protected me a lot and if it there had been even less of a gap it would have been much much harder and I think also a lot of women felt read that story and maybe this is why it did so well I read that story and thought oh god that's happened to me yeah um so harmful perhaps in that way I mean, I think, yeah. Oh, you mean that, like the the People cruelty? Yeah. Yes, exactly. I mean, that is the real deep part that was ugly about it was that people were identifying, were being brave essentially, and talking about the way that the story had spoken to them, and then this like backlash essentially that landed that was not just at me or at the story, but all of the women who had sort of stepped up to say, "Hey, this resonates with me." Yeah. I'm going to quote you now, if you oh, don't cool. mind. Oh, cool. No. <laughs> so you said in an interview, um, it speaks to the way that many women, especially young women, move through the world, not making people angry, taking responsibility for other people's emotions, working extremely hard to keep everyone around them happy. It's reflexive and self-protective, but it's also exhausting. How much, you know, this has been called a Me Too yeah. story. How much was that? How much did you set out to write, write a Me Too story? Um, I would say in some ways, like the sort of like practical answer is I didn't because I wrote the story before the Me Too movement had sort of come to its full fruition. Mm -hmm. So um, I wrote it, I think, in April around then of 2017. Um, but I do say um, that I think even though I wasn't directly responding to the Me Too movement or I wasn't like thinking, oh, I'm going to say something that will be particularly relevant. I have a professor who says that like the writer's job isn't to... Um, like react to current events. It's to be sort of permeable to them, to let them sort of sink in and affect you. And April 2017 was still post the 2016 election. It was post the Access Hollywood tape. And what I remember about writing the story in that moment was that feeling that was really pervasive where I was at, at least, that like the news was just grim every day. Every day something ugly was coming out. We all sort of felt like our teeth were on edge and all those conversations around gender and relationships just felt incredibly fraught. And so like my theory now in retrospect is that the same kind of energy powered the story in the Me Too movement, that that sense of frustration and anger that like really 
led to people like really speaking out kind of on mass in that moment that the story also was fed by that so that's not entirely a coincidence that they that they met together in that yeah. moment uh your collection came out here yesterday Congratulations. thank Very you exciting. um is that is it powered by that same feeling that kind of like where does it come from is it that feeling of frustration partly i mean i the stories i think the oldest story in there i wrote at least in its first draft maybe five or six years mm -hmm. ago um and so they come out of a fairly wide range of time like my life changed a lot over those those five or six years so it's hard to put um my finger on one particular sense of like yeah that's where that one came from i can do that in bits and pieces in each of those stories i feel like i am i don't know i'm i'm I don't know that I can answer that any better. Like there were definitely like consistent themes and things that I cared about. And I would say that power dynamics really are one of yeah. them and always have been. And I think this, this collection in particular is specifically invested in um, gender dynamics and the power like plays that are at stake there. Um, so yeah, I mean, in a, in a broad sense, I'd say yes. Yeah. What, what is it about this power dynamics? It often seems like the character you're talking about is the one who has the least power or the power is taken away from them um, or they're fighting for the power somehow. What is it about that that really interests you that makes you want to write about those characters? Yeah, I mean, I think I, a lot of things, I think, um, I, I, I think a lot of times, yeah, especially in all of the stories, power is sort of contested in some way and that like desire is being played out, is sort of being fought over by different characters, each of whom are maybe trying to get power over the other. And like, um, I think one of the sort of arcs I do think though, maybe in the story is that in some of the early stories and this I think reflects a lot of people's experience and certainly, certainly mine, like, especially to be a young woman growing up in the world is suddenly or like relatively quickly and kind of brutally finding that people want power over you and are also sort of investing you with ideas of power. Like no one I think feels simultaneously more powerful and powerless than a teenage girl. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of the book, not, they're not all teenagers in the book by far, but like I do feel like that is kind of a like a rich source of a lot of the stories is that feeling of oscillating really quickly between feeling totally in control and feeling absolutely like you have no control at all. And one of the things that I, I wanted like a sort of arc in the book sort of towards the end, um, several of the stories, including the one that I, that I started to read were a little bit shifted a little and they're about women who want something and it might be something terrible, but they know that they want it and they're going to go for it and get it and like maybe not face consequences for it. Um, so yeah, I would say that's what I was thinking about. And there's a couple of terrifying groups of teenage girls yeah. um, who frightened me. I <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, um, I, I kind of felt I I was on their side, but also I mm -hmm. felt for the characters they were persecuting. Um, right. What kind of teenager were you? Uh, <laughs> I was not. I was a teenager. I don't think I found my group as a teenager. Mm -hmm. Like I never. I, I I would say I feel like the craving to be a part of a group as a as a teenager, like I never felt that before or since. Like I I feel like as a child I was a sort of weird independent like go your own way child. I actually have a very vivid memory of being ten. I don't know why I'm going to share this personal essay now <laughs> or personal anecdote now. I just will. Um, but I but I was ten and a bunch of girls were fighting and like one of my friends got sort of exiled from the group and I like. I mean, I was on the far, far circle of the of the 
uh, far, far edges of the social circle. But um, I'd like read a lot of books and I knew that we weren't, you weren't supposed to be in cliques, like cliques were bad. And so I told my friend, I was like, I will not not sit with you because I don't, I don't believe in clicks <laughs> like very haughtily. And then um, I'm, and her mom, she told her mom and her mom told my mom and my mom was like, Kristen, good job. I'm really <laughs> proud of you. And I was so proud. And then like the next year when I was 11, I was like, somebody let me into a click. I'm so <laughs> desperate and lonely. Um, but my friend Lynn stuck with me, you know, she didn't bring me into the click that she immediately returned to, you know, but she would still <laughs> invite me over for like sleepovers. So I was grateful to her. So I guess what I mean is I was a person even then who had a very complicated relationship with like groups and group identity I like desperately wanted to be a part of them and then also never quite fit like never quite fit or never maybe fully was able to like slide in yeah. I don't know what kind of a teenager were you oh <laughs> <laughs> um I think I was a very anxious teenager. Yeah. I think I was uncomfortable in my own body. Um potentially like a lot of readers mm-hmm. um exactly you know you read because you don't want to yeah talk to anybody yeah um and also I didn't like being a teenager I was right. my family still talk about the Turkish holiday where apparently I was awful mm-hmm. you know I think I like cried and shouted a lot um and then was very happy when I was out of yeah out of that um and I'm still scared of, I'm quite scared of teenagers because yeah. I do think they have this um yeah you talk about your progression in the book where the teenagers want something and then when they're older they still want something and they're not sure how to get it I think teenagers right. often they just try, they just get it. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's true. Because you don't, you're, you recognize what the consequences are more. Yeah. That makes me think too, not to like totally disturb, but yeah, like to be a bookish child, mm-hmm. I think is to live in a world. I was so sweet, I think as a kid, because all everybody I knew was in books and like they behaved pretty well. And like later I was like, when I went to junior high, I was like, these rules are not working for me. <laughs> they are not getting me what I need. And it was like, I felt utterly unprepared. And it was in part because I had grown up just in a world where if you just like boldly told your friends you didn't believe in clicks, then you were rewarded at the end by being the hero. Yeah. It's not how it works. <laughs> what kind of books were you reading? What were those books? Um, I read, I read like pretty widely as a kid, but I was a big, I spent the most time in the like sci-fi fantasy mm-hmm. horror section. Um, I was a big sort of steel books off my parents' bookshelf reader. I would always, I read a lot when I was young, like so far above my reading level that a lot of my memories of reading early was like kind of not knowing what was going on, like having really intense feelings and also being like, I don't understand what is happening. And that somehow didn't bother me. And I would read books over and over again because truly the first three times I'd be like, and it's books like, it's like Anne of Green Gables. I remember Anne of Green Gables. I just read a little too young and I was like, where are they? What is this country? Like, (laughs) who are these characters? (laughs) Which is like very silly. Um, But yeah, so I was, I was very ambitious, sort of ambitious beyond my means as a, as a childhood reader, but a super, super invested one. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And as a teenager? And as a teenager, even more, even more like, I mean, I guess I had a little bit less than, I think my comfort and be uh, my comfort with being confused and disoriented probably dropped away a little mm-hmm. that I wanted to read things more that I was sure that I understood. And so I think I actually spent a fairly long time like reading YA as opposed to adults. Right. Like I had even maybe read more adult for a little while when I was a kid. And then um, I was still a huge Stephen King fan, a huge big horror fan. I wanted like, I liked, I liked, yeah, like pretty, pretty intense kind of pulpy genre um books and like yeah and I was like deeply invested in them Mm -hmm. it's interesting you talk about horror and sci-fi 
your writing seems to kind of balance on the edge. You know, you're writing literary, I guess. Uh, and But there is that sci-fi yeah. horror aspect. And often at the end of each story, you know, you kind of go through it thinking, is this happening? Is it not happening? And then it definitely does happen. Right. Um, there's a particular story about a parasite, which I like. Yeah. <laughs> cool. um, yeah, and I think maybe that's happening more that people are, you know, these genre boundaries are dissolving. Is that something you were doing purposefully or? Yeah, I mean, purposefully, I guess. I mean, I it's the kind of reader that I am and always have been. And when I started writing stories, they were pretty full, for stories like as an adult in this most recent, like five or six year period when I was writing seriously and, and close to full time. Um, I started writing stor- horror stories. Like, and I think some of the more, um, straight genre stories are um, are like the earlier ones. Um, but I don't know. One of the things I did want from the collection was the effect of a certain kind of disorientation that sets in when you don't know what genre of a story that you're in. And like part of the arrangement of the stories was I wanted by the time you reached like Cat Person, you reached a story where it's not quite clear what the stakes are. You you feel the the tension. I feel like if it's only horror stories, you do exactly. You know that the worst thing is going to happen. Mm-hmm. And if it's a more realist story, by the time you've read the third or fourth one, you might have a sense that, okay, like, you know, I have a sense of the range of the possible outcomes here. But ideally, if you're reading the collection, like, and that's a moment that there is in Cat Person that I always thought of as, like, sort of, in the context of the collection, there's a, a moment where Margot is sitting in a car and she like looks at Robert and she has a thought that's like, is he going to murder me? And in the context of that story alone, it's like sort of a ridiculous thought. And you're like, oh, I don't know where that comes from. And she herself is like, you know, that's ridiculous. Don't think about that. Um, but in the story collection as a whole, you like when you're by the time you get there, you know that it's a possibility. And I think that is one of the things about living in the world is like, we don't ever know quite what kind of a story we we're living in. Are we living in a story? Like, is this reasonable to be afraid that I'm going to get murdered? Is it like absurd? You don't know. Yeah. So, uh, is that what you thought about when you were structuring the collection? These, yeah. How did you structure the collection? Putting the very sci-fi stories next to the realist stories next to the dating stories. Yeah, that was a big, that was a big thing I kept in mind, um, was wanting to keep a sort of balance between the different kinds of stories. Um, the opening story is a very extreme story and that was always the first story, but, um, especially after Cat Person, I really wanted the first story in the collection to let people know that they were maybe not in the kind of collection that they were thinking they might be, not to push them away exactly but to I didn't want to trick anybody like I hated the idea of someone buy like if I'd put cat person which some editors wanted me to do like put cat person first and the good guy second I feel like a lot of people would have been like oh yeah this is a collection for me and then ended up halfway and being like what are all these murders doing here and then like I didn't want that I want to trick them so it was like an announcement that sort of if you're if you're down for this mm-hmm. you are maybe down for the rest of the of the collection um so yeah it was that um, although Cat Person and Good Guy are back to back, which was sort of personal, yeah. a purposeful because I do feel like they they are fairly linked mm-hmm. stories. It's so like a longer novella, also fairly realist, and and then yeah, that like move towards the end of kind of women coming, taking what they want, and walking off stage was something I felt like right. was a kind of satisfaction after you'd put people through the sort of torture of the and like you know ringer of the of the first half of the collection. 
Cab has known good guy, kind of in the middle. Is that right? Yep. Um, and they're both about dating. Yes. And I don't. I haven't read very many other people writing about online dating. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's newish. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what is it about? online dating that really made you want to write about it you know it's funny like both of the stories they are like i agreed immediately because they are mm -hmm. about it and yet they don't tend to most of the relationships don't they don't happen online like in on cat person they meet him in, in person and then a lot of good guys about relationships in his um early years but a lot of cat person takes place um, over text and a lot of, I hadn't thought about this until right now, but like a lot of the good guys, it's a long distance relationship. So right. it's a lot about what I feel like is an increasingly familiar way of being in the world where so much of our interpersonal reaction, uh, interaction takes place at a distance. Mm -hmm. And I think um, I have a lot of thoughts about that. I think it's a lot about like sometimes people call the collection body horror, which like I do think it takes part in. And I think that one of the the consequences of being able, and this is connects too to like being bookish people who like like to live in a world that isn't necessarily like fully embodied. Like the hor the there's a freedom in that, there's a joy in that, um, but there's also a temptation in that to sort of forget that like other people tend to have like bodies that you will eventually come up against and, and as you come up against them you're sort of being forced to let go of some of the ideas that you about them that you're able to carry on when they just were like words on a page um and so i think that move yeah i think there is something a little bit horrific to that that made it a, a the right fit for a subject for the collection yeah i think the body horror stuff was my favorite Stuff, yeah, I think potentially as a Stephen King yeah, yeah. Uh, fan. Um, but it also, you know, there aren't many books you read where like I could feel my face scrunching up. <laughs> oh, sometimes I put it down. Sometimes I like walked around. Um, sometimes I like laughed or made kind of like an involuntary yeah. noise. Oh, yeah. Um, and you talk quite purposefully about, you know, the reader. You yeah. Know, the reader is clearly very positioned for you. Yeah. Were there times you felt like you were going too far or times you pushed it further with that reader in mind? I think it definitely, I, I like that phrase. Like, um, but yeah, I, the reader is, is very present for me always. Um, but usually I have to think of readers, like le think less of readers than of one specific reader or try to imagine who is the right reader for me. And I tend to draw most on my idea of myself as a reader. And so I... I'm a reader who likes to be in a pretty uncomfortable space, who has a fairly high tolerance for, I mean, I do all those same things as you when I'm reading a book that scares me, but I'm still going back to it. So, so I'm, I'm thinking about that. And yet it's also really important to me that like, I feel like especially with books, more than even movies, more than any other genre, like the reader is empowered page by page. Like the, re the relationship is fundamentally consensual, essentially, because you can always close a book and the reader can always do that. And you can't write more than a page without thinking like, am I going to lose a reader here? And so while certainly I'm like hoping to find what's essentially the sweet spot between like revulsion that and discomfort that is is unpleasant i'm never actively although certainly like different readers have different thresholds i'm never trying to push a reader all the way out and if i am moving into like a particularly uncomfortable space i am also thinking about like well what am i offering in exchange like what are the things that people are getting that make it worth like reading this 
paragraph about a disgusting parasite or whatever. And so sometimes that is, it's the last paragraph, so like they don't have to do anything. Um, but other times um, it's like it's humor or it's like a plot dynamic that feels like you're curious to know what's going to happen. Or it's like what feels like hopefully like vulnerability in a place for people to identify, right? And I think all of those things like combined, it's can create a really heightened and intense reading experience of the kind that I like, but it is a really careful balance. And I think probably over the course of 12 stories, you're going to lose some reader at some point, but like hopefully overall it feels worth it. Yeah. On one end, there's like the disgust you're talking about, yeah. the kind of revulsion on the other, there's like desire. I think yeah. um, some of the stories, you know, open with sex, like right. quite graphic sex. Right. Um, particularly, I think sex, with like women women yeah, having yeah. sex can you talk about a bit about that about what it was like to write that yeah yeah I mean it's funny it's so weird to be like here talking about that in front of like all these eyes <laughs> <laughs> I mean because really one of the things when, I, when I'm writing any story whether there's sex in it or not is I sort of have to do a lot of work to pretend to myself and sort of trick myself into thinking like maybe no one will ever read this you know what I mean and like to feel like if I have an audience mm -hmm. it's like very distant for me and that like and I think that is true that like in my experience of reading and this is one of the things that the internet does sort of like is making less true reading was so solitary for me do you know what I mean like it was the thing I did alone and it was the way what I did to be alone to be left alone and then writing for me it took a long time for it to start to feel that way again but I do feel it a little bit I do feel safer writing about things than I would never feel comfortable talking about without like with almost anyone you know what I mean and it is because I got into this like imaginary space where like the only other people are writers that I'll never meet you know what I mean like I'm living in that yeah you're like nodding like you know <laughs> um and it's um and so then I think partly maybe my stories center around sex because I'm like in other ways a sort of like repressed New Englander who like needs that space to fully think through everything but also just because I don't know yeah I think I think the theme in this book in particular it's very funny to me that like this ended up being my first book that introduces right. me to everyone because I don't think it's all I think about or all I write about but I do think when you're writing about power it's like it is just such a space for talking about contested power and it's just such a like it's just, I don't know, like if you're willing to go there, there's so much to be kind of done in that space of like, yeah, desire and repulsion and horror. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I love what you said about um, you're a solitary reader and then yeah. you make yourself a solitary writer. What kind of writer are you? What is your process of writing? Yeah, I mean, I... I have a sort of set beginning of the process, which is um, I'm, I write in the morning and I, the way that I, I wrestled with writer's block for something like close to a decade. Like I was a really just to the point where I wasn't even saying I was a writer anymore. Like I was just like, oh, that was a, something I tried to do um, because I was in the place where I would like sit down, I would try and write, I would think of an idea for a story. I'd write one sentence. I'd hate the sentence more than anything that ever had been written. I'd delete it. I'd close my computer and then I would like put it off for another three weeks. Like it was just really torturous. Um, and what happened was that later, um, after some time had gone by, I came back to it like in a much like gentler or sort of like low key space. And I, and I had the idea, I was like, I was 30. I was like, Kristen, if you're not going to write a novel now, you like probably never will. Like, and at that point the like stakes had lowered so much because I was sort of like, 
it's even if it's bad, it's better than nothing, which is what I'm almost certainly going to write for the rest of my life. Um, and so I made a sort of deal where in the morning I would like have a cup of coffee and I would have a book, like a, like a physical book in front of me and my laptop. And I'd be like, okay, for an hour, you can either read this book that is exciting and interesting to you, or you can at any point stop reading and like write for a little while. And so it was like the lightest, lightest touch. And that has carried me forward really, really well, like trying to remind myself of the connection between reading and writing, trying to make the, them feel similar. Um, and also writing stories, I think that sort of in, in some way like are like the ones that I love the most. I think that's another reason that my first book was horror because it was like by getting back to that space, I could remember that there was pleasure in it yeah. um, and I was able to for the first time feel the pleasure that I got from reading while I was writing and it was it was really lovely do you remember what the books were that were on the desk while you were I do actually read? yeah um, it was the one that or the one that I that sticks in my mind was it was a anthology of dark sh of horror stories called the weird um, which is I don't know if it's out here but it's edited by Jeff Vandermeer and his wife do you know them yeah yeah, uh, yeah. Um, they were like Annihilation. They turned into a movie. Uh -huh. um, but it was, it's a span, it's a, it's a bunch of, of really dark st horror stories, but it spans a range of over 100 years. And in addition to the sort of usual genre, like Lovecraft and Stephen King and Neil Gaiman, it's like, there's Angela Carter, there's Joyce Carol Oates, there's like Jamaica Kincaid, like so a few that you wouldn't even think at all of yeah. as writing horror. And I just like would jump around in it and I'd be like, I could like, and there was one I remember, it was like, I read a story about a screaming skull. And I was like, I could write a story about a screaming <laughs> skull. And then I did. And it didn't get into the collection, but you know, it was just like that direct. Like, yeah. why shouldn't I be able to write one? You yeah. know? So it was fun. And is that still how you write? Do you still have it with the book on the table? It's like a little less um, direct now um, be just because I feel like I've, I've, and who knows, actually, it might be a thing about how after I go through all of this, like I have to restart again, mm -hmm. sort of forgetting about my ego and about other people. But um, yeah, definitely in the sense of it's all about like not letting my like evil inner critic who would like nothing better than to like kick my head in, you know, to like get that person out of the, out of the way so that I can actually do what I need to do. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to ask one more question about sex and then we can open up. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Um, there was an article in the Guardian about, and you were cited and Sally Rooney was cited yeah, yeah. Um, and Roxanne Gay was cited. Did you read this? I don't know if I did. About uh, violence and sex, mm -hmm. particularly, um, women uh, asking for violence and sex. Yeah, There's one yeah. story in your collection where a woman asks to be punched yeah. and then kicked. Um, and I think the article was saying, was talking a little bit about a worry that BDSM has been connected with trauma, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, how do you find the balance about writing about sex that way, you know? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. And actually, it helps me understand a question I got last night that I think was almost certainly directly inspired <laughs> by that article, but she didn't cite it. Um, yeah. I think I think it's complicated. I actually just finished the Sally Rooney book today. And so I was thinking about that. And I was like, I saw some connections um, specifically yeah. out of that story. Um, I don't know. I think, I don't know, since I didn't read the article, I don't know exactly what the objections were. But I feel like I got them. Like I, I sense that it is a fine line. And I think, I don't know. I, I, there's a sense in which for me, writing has always been a little bit about 
or like reading often I will use to press a bruise. Like I will use to say like this thing scares me or this thing feels out of control over or overwhelming, but I'd like to experience some parts of it in a controlled way and like learn to how learn to like master it in a particular context, um, which is of everything that scares me, of everything that has been difficult. And so I think it doesn't surprise me. I guess the question is like, there's also, so there's like, why would you want to write it? And why would you want to read it? And maybe they are similar, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so I think it's possible. I mean, I don't know if the concern was for the like, and now I just really want to read the article and come back with a different with a with a with a better response. But I do think that like fundamentally, it's easy to pathologize the reading tastes of women, and that is something that happens a lot. And and it can be understandable. I think often it's like other women recognizing that sometimes, as women, we want things that aren't always the best, and that culture is a really confusing kind of messy field in which. I mean, that's true for me. Like when I think about like the horror movies that I love, like I know in some ways, like I'm like, why do I like this? This isn't saying what I want it to say. It isn't, it isn't like doing what I wish it would do. And yet it is giving me something that I need. And you can have that kind of double consciousness, I think, when it comes to all of this stuff where you can say like, we're in a pretty troubled moment in terms of like sexual relations and like where young women are and like you don't have to like that at all you don't have to endorse it you don't have to say we want to keep it this way and yet I think I feel very protective of anyone's sort of cultural or like what they want to read and what they want to watch because it seems to me in, in so many ways the safest way to be thinking about some things that can often when you're an individual feel just absolutely unmanageable and that we can let what we read be what we read. We can let what we watch be what we watch. And still at the same time in our sort of like political and social and personal lives be like, we want things to be different and we'll do what we can. And I think it's much more likely that then the subject matter will change, then the taste will change rather than trying to police the taste as a sort of proxy for making the world better, which is hard and like takes a really long time. Yeah. Maybe that had nothing to do with what the article no, said. No, I don't that know. Was a good, that was a good answer. <laughs> okay. um, there's a, maybe a pressure here more than in the US to, you know, you write your short story collection and then you write a novel. Yeah. You know, do something proper. Write a novel. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> um, how do you feel about short stories? And move, are you now writing a novel? Are you thinking about it? Yeah. I mean, I, I my contract in the US is for two books, one mm -hmm. of which must be a novel. So, yes, indeed I am. <laughs> At least that's what I'm saying. No, I really am. Um, but, uh, but it's hard. And, and I do feel like it's funny. I've been writing... As, as long as I've been writing short stories, I've had some kind of large, larger project in the works. And often, not always, there have been times when that's all I'm writing, but often the stories will be this kind of delightful like way of escaping the larger project and like indulging in something or figuring something out that is going wrong in, in the bigger project. And I, like, I've finished those larger projects, but I've never been fully satisfied with them. And, and I think in part it's because there's something that I, I get and I love about what to me often feels even in the writing and even though obviously there's like months if not years of redrafting and editing and whatever that I can feel in the drafting of a short story it often feels like a cohesive experience that I kind of live as I write it like the first draft for me like I can hold as a whole in my brain and you just can't do it with a novel and so I think often what has happened is that I can get like 80 pages of the great like outline essentially of a novel and I still have to figure out what the there's so many other just like basic craft techniques that you need to figure out what will make a novel a satisfying reading experience instead of essentially, um, you know, 
a short story that you just added on your page two because your editor made you. And I don't want to do that. Um, and so, yeah, I think I'll always, I hope if I learn how to write a novel, which I am actually feeling fairly confident that I will someday do, um, I think I will always write both as opposed to feeling like, oh, I, I do think, yeah, it's a very condescending, like, oh, you prepare to write a novel by writing short stories. That's not how I feel at all. I feel like I have to learn still how to write a novel, but yeah. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Blackwells Presents. Visit our website at www.blackwells.com. Follow our Twitter and Instagram at, at @blackwelloxford. Check our event by page to see what exciting events are coming up in the bookshop. And don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel, which features many author interviews. Thank you for listening. <laughs>